Section 5 of Charles James Fox by Henry Offley Wakeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 The Fall of Lord North, 1777 to 1782, Part 1. The surrender of General Burgoyne at Saratoga on the 17th of October, 1777, put an end to the possibility of the reduction of america by force of arms the alliance with france which followed hard upon it secured her independence englishmen under the leadership of the single-minded king and his venal followers had set about the coercion of thirteen colonies with as light a heart as they would order out the military to suppress a street riot from the first they persisted in attributing the resistance which they met with to a few disloyal lawyers and politicians who were bent on independence they would not believe that they had to deal with a nation determined to maintain its liberties they did not realize how difficult it was to coerce into submission a country between whose shores and their own flowed three thousand miles of ocean that terrible ocean they thought could be bridged if it could not be drained and america had no fleet with which to dispute with england for the supremacy of the sea they never stopped to think what the result of their victory was to be they might indeed with the help of german mercenaries and indian savages crush the hasty levies of washington in the field but that was merely the beginning of difficulties it was hard enough as every english statesman knew to hold ireland down with all the help which a powerful english garrison of landowners the long tradition of protestant ascendancy and eighty years of the grossest legal tyranny could give was it conceivable that a united america the children of smith and of winthrop and of penn would ever submit to be the slaves of a penal code was it reasonable to expect that an army of twelve or of twenty or of fifty thousand men could thus hold down by force a growing and vigorous nationality three thousand miles away force as burke pointed out is not the only nor the truest sanction of government besides the appeal to physical force there must always be the appeal to moral right justice must go hand in hand with power if peace is to be the result the case for the ministry depended wholly upon two assumptions that it was not the nation but a factious minority which had taken up arms against its sovereign and that the military and naval superiority of england was so great that the geographical difficulties in the way of conquest could be overcome the events of the first two years of the war showed that both assumptions were erroneous the assembling of the congress and the declaration of independence proved the union of the colonies the surrender of saratoga showed that in america colonists and loyalists could fight to say the least on equal terms the treaty with france put in daily jeopardy the command of the sea which was essential to the carrying on of hostilities by england at all lord north saw the abyss which was opening before him in february seventeen seventy eight he carried through parliament proposals for conciliation which would have been welcomed in america in seventeen seventy four and which were substantially the same as those proposed by burke in seventeen seventy five secret communications were opened with franklin in paris 
but Franklin replied that it was now too late. The public avowal of the treaty between France and America a few days afterwards more than justified his words. To be too late is the attribute of all incompetent ministers. In 1778, Lord North proposed two late terms which would have been accepted in 1775. In 1782, the king had to agree to the independence which he had refused to consider in 1778. From the date of the treaty with France, it was clear that America would accept no terms short of independence, and it was equally clear that England could not force other terms upon her as long as France supplied her with money. After the death of Chatham in May 1778, it became a settled principle with the opposition that the acknowledgment of American independence was a measure absolutely inevitable and therefore wise though no definite motion was made by fox by way of pledging the house to this policy the main gist of all his speeches on the american question delivered subsequently to seventeen seventy eight was to show the impossibility of conquering america and the absolute necessity of making peace once in seventeen seventy nine and twice in seventeen eighty one he urged this directly with all his powers upon parliament and as it was universally admitted that peace at that time could only be obtained by the grant of independence, there could be no doubt as to which way his opinion pointed. In 1781 he said as much openly, As to the mere single proposition, whether America might with propriety be declared independent, abstracted from other considerations, it is perfectly ridiculous to debate about it in the House this evening america as the right honourable gentleman has confessed is already independent and as he well observed from one point of view ought to be considered as a public enemy i most heartily agree with the right honourable gentleman that she is independent i may possibly disagree with him when i affirm again that she will and must be independent and this i am in my own mind authorised to say were it not that conciliatory healing and friendly negotiation may effect much in preventing the bad consequences which a vote declaring america independent might be productive of hereafter i should instead of making the motion i have done directly have moved that the american states be declared independent burke had enunciated the same truths as early as december seventeen seventy eight with regard to avowing the independency of america gentlemen looked at the position in a wrong point of view and talked of it merely as a matter of choice when in fact it was now become a matter of necessity it is in this latter light only that i regard it in the latter light only that i maintain that it is incumbent on great britain to acknowledge it directly on the day I first heard of the American states having claimed independency, it made me sick at heart. It struck me to the soul because I saw it was a claim essentially injurious to this country, and a claim which Great Britain can never get rid of, never, never, never. It is not, therefore, to be thought that I wish for the independency of America. Far from it. I feel it as a circumstance exceedingly detrimental to the fame and exceedingly detrimental to the interest of this country. But when by a wrong management of the cards a gamester has lost much, 
it is right for him to make the most of the game as it then stands and to take care that he does not lose more this is our case at present the stake already gone is material but the very existence of our empire is more and we are now madly putting that to the risk the duke of richmond with characteristic impetuosity had made up his mind as early as seventeen seventy six that the grant of independence was the only way of preventing serious national disaster and had said as much in the house of lords in seventeen seventy eight rockingham careful and taciturn was understood to have accepted the inevitable after the campaign of saratoga during the latter years of the war shelburne remained the only whig politician of any note who true to the memory of lord chatham could not bear openly to look facts in the face in the nation a similar change was slowly winning its way owing to the stern logic of events at the outbreak of the war the bulk of the educated classes were on the side of the king the universities the clergy the lawyers the landed gentry and a large part of the commercial classes readily supported a cause in which king and parliament were united and which seemed at first sight to be the cause both of constitutional right and of imperial unity the greatest names in the literary world were found on the same side junius adam smith johnson and gibbon most men did not trouble themselves to look to see if the colonists were anything more than naughty boys who had made a riot and must take their punishment but when the time for a general election came round again in seventeen eighty a considerable change was visible in public opinion the younger generation of educated men who had been growing up while the war had been raging and who had followed anxiously the failures of our armies and had sympathized heartily in the attacks on the mismanagement of affairs were almost to a man in opposition william pitt william wilberforce and richard brinsley sheridan were all elected for the first time in the parliament of seventeen eighty and all joined the opposition the common people had always been on the side of the colonists in the country during the winter of seventeen seventy nine and eighty there were signs that even the landed gentry and the clergy were beginning to desert the banner of the court petitions for peace were largely signed in the counties meetings were held at which squires and clergy appeared and denounced the corruption of the government and the mismanagement of the war it is significant of the altered state of opinion among the landed interest that fox at a great meeting at westminster should have advocated the addition of a hundred county members to the house of commons even the wits who like the rats ever quit a sinking ship were coming round and their shafts became directed against the blunders of the ministry instead of against the factiousness of the opposition the disaster of saratoga could not dismay them burgoyne unconscious of impending fates could cut his way through woods but not through gates and a report that our enemies were buying up our own horses to use against ourselves only suggested to them the following contrast we are told that the monsieur our horses import but regardless we are of what passes but lord what a racket twould make in our court if they kindly would purchase our asses in parliament alone the arguments of reason and the teaching of experience seemed to have no weight it was the business of the placeman to vote and not to think 
not even the invective of fox could penetrate to a conscience or a mind protected by the solid armour of self-interest the only result of the superiority in argument enjoyed by the opposition was to raise the price of votes the elections of seventeen eighty returned a substantial majority for the ministers but at a cost so far exceeding that of previous elections that even the king remonstrated while in the succeeding year the best part of a million of public money was distributed among the friends and supporters of the ministry by the infamous plan of issuing the new loan to them below the market price it was a true instinct that made the opposition concentrate their energies in seventeen eighty and eighty one upon the reform of parliament whatever burke and the old whigs might say the americans were perfectly right when they complained that since the accession of the hanoverian dynasty a revolution had taken place in the english constitution which though silent was of infinitely greater moment than anything which was done in sixteen eighty eight the old systems of checks and balances so fondly appealed to by writers on the constitution though nominally in full force had practically disappeared the old division between the legislative and the executive which montesquieu thought the vital principle of the constitutional organism was a corpse when he discovered it the personal responsibility of the crown for the well-being of the nation had shrivelled into a rudimentary organ of constitutional life valuable only as showing what once had been the authority of parliament had taken the place of the authority of the king parliament had become the keystone of the constitutional structure the wisdom of parliament made the laws the voice of parliament called forth the ministers the finger of parliament marked out their policy the eye of parliament searched out abuses the hand of parliament punished their perpetrators the spirit of parliament gave life and unity to the whole body of the nation so complete was the transference of real power from the hands of the king to those of parliament that even the ecclesiastical supremacy of the crown an authority essentially personal and only intelligible because it is personal had insensibly drifted into the hands of parliament directly parliament became in this way the real centre of all government it was natural that those sections of society which wished for political power should at once direct all their energies to the obtaining of control over parliament during the eighteenth century the enslaving of parliament was an object of policy as deliberately undertaken and as unremittingly pursued as ever was the enslaving of the nation by henry the eighth the aristocracy was first in the field the great whig families who had carried through the revolution of sixteen eighty eight were the natural inheritors of its bounty a combination of events put all political power into their hands at the accession of george i they were determined to keep it in the house of lords their supremacy was unchallenged they set themselves to make their supremacy in the house of commons equally undoubted and with that object grew up the system which has made the name of walpole infamous for all time the real charge against walpole is not that he was corrupt that he gave pensions and places for votes statesmen before him and statesmen after him have plunged their arms up to the elbow in corruption but after a time the muddy waters pass away and the stream runs again pure and free 
but that he poisoned the river at its source. He deliberately developed the disease of the body politic and prevented the healthy flow of the national life. He was the physician who, being called in to regulate a patient's health, sets himself to produce in him an organic disease in order that he may retain him as a patient for the rest of his life. It was inevitable that during the progress of years the representative system of England should become antiquated and obsolete. Towns once flourishing had become hamlets. Villages once obscure had grown into important trading centres. The franchise, which had once been enjoyed by the bulk of the educated citizens, had become restricted to a small clique. These were the diseased parts of the representative system. They were unhealthy growths, which had developed naturally in the course of years, but which must be pruned and cut off before the tree would bear fruit as it ought. But these were just the parts on which the Whig families fastened in order to make their supremacy complete. So far from pruning or cutting them away, they delighted in them. They stereotyped them. They made them their own. Here was the chosen field of the local influence of the neighboring peer, of the open bribes of the borough-monger and the nabob, and of the gratifications of the dispenser of the secret service money. So successful was this policy that by the middle of the century the House of Commons represented the House of Lords far more faithfully than it did the nation. But on the accession of George III the Whig families found that the king could play their game even better than they. To all the advantages which they possessed in common, George could add the peculiar and subtle influence of royalty. He could concentrate the whole forces of influence upon his object better than could a minister or a clique. By the pressure of court authority and lavish additions to the peerage, he soon had the House of Lords at his command. By the exercise of a patronage more unprincipled than that of Newcastle, and a corruption more shameless than that of Walpole, he gained gradually a majority in the House of Commons devoted enough to remain steady during all the blunders of his early years. It is impossible to overestimate the importance of this pollution of the representative institutions of England. Nearly, if not all, of the national disasters of the time, it may safely be predicted would not have happened had the House of Commons been in any sense representative of public opinion. Of course, no one at the time of the American War except the Duke of Richmond thought that the House of Commons should be representative of those who neither by their property nor by their education had shown themselves entitled to exercise the franchise. The age of democracy had not yet come. The demand of the reformers of the time was not for a large extension of political power among the people, but for its more even distribution among the educated classes. The House of Commons, it was felt, should be representative, at any rate in a rough way, of the education and good sense of the nation, and a constitution stultified itself which, after carefully dividing political power between the hereditary and the representative principles, allowed the latter to fall entirely under the dominion of the former. A House of Commons which claimed to be the representative of the commonalty, and was in reality an assembly of the paid servants of the king, was a contradiction in terms. The sense of this monstrous unreality runs through the whole of the eighteenth-century history. 
felt instinctively by the people rather than closely looked into and understood it is at the root of all the real dangers which threatened the political fabric it was one of the chief merits of the elder pitt the great commoner that he learned early to look for the expression of public opinion away from parliament and ever did his best to get the nation as well as parliament on his side you have taught me said george the second to him on a well-known occasion to look for the sentiments of my people elsewhere than in parliament meaner men did not see the necessity a newcastle a grenville or a north was content with his parliamentary majority and as long as that would last did not look further wilkes became a hero and a patriot because it was felt that king parliament and judges were combined to crush him in their own interests and not in those of law or morality the city rallied cheerfully to the support of lord mayor crosby and mr alderman oliver because they believed that the privilege of parliament in the mouth of the house of commons was but another name for the slavery of the subject lord george gordon and his rioters turned london into a pandemonium for two days because the more prejudiced and fanatical of englishmen would not trust a parliament returned by royal influence to be a safe guardian of protestantism End of section five